If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Were all suspected witches burned at the stake? Was it legal to use torture to gain a confession of practising magic? And which professions were most commonly accused of dabbling in the dark arts? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, historian Professor Owen Davies tackles the history of witchcraft. As always in this series, Owen will be answering a combination of listener questions from social media and the internet's top search engine questions, put to him today by Charlotte Hodgman. So Owen, thanks ever so much for joining us today. We're going to be talking about the history of witchcraft and and witches. So perhaps a good place to start is kind of perhaps you could just kind of define what what witchcraft is and was in the past. Witchcraft is is essentially a branch of magic. Fundamentally, it's harmful magic. So witchcraft in a historic context can never be a good thing. A witch in the past can never be a good thing. So it's wide-ranging in terms of what is witchcraft from a popular perspective on the ground, so to speak. Then witchcraft is mostly um, what we call maleficium. That is everyday harmful bits of of magic and annoyance by a a witch um, in your community who wants to cause you harm, maybe even death out of envy, out of spite. It can be from anything from making your cartwheel fall off to making your, you know, bewitching your baby or your child, your cows, your pigs, your chickens, making them stop laying eggs. Often quite common in dairy and communities, witches would supposedly attack butter making, so the butter would never come or the milk would go sour. So from that, so it, from, it's all those sorts of myriad sorts of misfortunes uh, can be explained from the bottom. From the elite point of view, from theolo- theological point of view, which is, is, is essentially complicit with the devil. It's um, that they are the de- the devil's 
um, henchmen and henchwomen, and they are part of the conspiracy to overthrow Christendom. So, you know, on, on, on a high-end theology, they are quite different conceptually to what they are on the ground, but then when it comes to the laws against witchcraft that are brought in, then the kind of the, the, the two urgencies come together. Okay, no, thank you for that. That's um, that's good to kind of clarify that before we start. So perhaps if we start with some of the kind of most popular Google questions, just to kind of get us underway, who was the first person to be accused of witchcraft that we know of? It's impossible to know who the first person accused of being a witch is uh, or being accused of witchcraft. Uh, we, we just don't know. We don't have the records for that. What we can say is that the concept of witchcraft and the, the witch figure uh, we have, you know, they are talked about in classical sources, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and even even before that. And we look at sort of you know, the early civilizations. There are clearly people who are accused of performing harmful magic against their neighbours or whatever. So we know that the concept goes back thousands of years. You know, and it depends where you are in your in, in, in the different cultures and different periods. It, the whole point for us as historians is when they get recognised in the sources. Uh, and if we're looking at focusing right back onto a, a British. Uh, cases, we, they, there are clearly um, records in Anglo-Saxon records, in medieval records of these these witch figures doing harm. But obviously, it's with the first laws, explicit laws against witchcraft. The very first one being in 1542 that we actually get really these people being identified. We have we, in the medieval period there are kind of various courtly intrigues that take place where people are sometimes accused of of sorcery, uh, in particular. Um, but the classic witch figure, really, we only really see them clearly when, when the laws are introduced. You've kind of touched on this. When did witch, um, witchcraft first become a crime? Depends where you are, of course. But in Europe, and when we, you know, we, it is the European witch trials, and, and then in the colonies of the European countries, there's a range of laws that come in around 1530s, 1540s. So uh, the Holy Roman Empire, we have a Carolina Code that's brought in in the 1530s. Um, but then laws in Denmark and, and other countries which aren't part of the Holy Roman Empire introduce their own laws. So it really is this, this period of the 1530s, 1540s, and that includes England, Wales and Scotland, uh, where um, the English law comes in 1542. And you know the, the, what, the laws are recognising the fears and concerns, particularly obviously of the elite, but obviously they also meet the fears and concerns of people on the ground about maleficium and everyday harmful. Uh, acts of uh, supposed witchcraft. Um, but once you introduce the law, um, depending on the legal system that, that's operating in different countries, then that's obviously when the opportunity comes to, because the state is basically saying, we will deal with these people for you. Before that, you would have to rely on magic or counter magic yourself. And and so there's different processes of thinking that, that go on once the law is introduced. Okay, so well, let's move on then to some of, we've had a lot of response actually across social media to kind of our, to our shout out for questions for this interview. So Jack M. Smith on Instagram wanted to know, was there a time or place when witchcraft was respected or revered in society? No, because because witchcraft is inherently considered to be malign, to be bad, to be harmful. So we need to we need to make a distance from contemporary conceptions of of witchcraft, neo pagan witchcraft, Wicca, other various expressions. Where 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 obviously that is a spiritual, religious, magical practice, or generally generally benign, environmental, and everything else. That that is very different to the idea and concept of witch prior to the development of Wicca et al. after the Second World War. So, you know, prior to that, witches are bad, evil, 
Um, that's it. And that's why people say we, we must exterminate them, get rid of them. Another question on Instagram was, um, why do we think of witches as warty old hags? And when did this p- depiction become popular? The old stereotype of, you know, the crooked old woman bent double with a sour face, you know, hook nose, warts, etc. Um, goes back to some of the early print writings. Uh, about witches in particular so you know the old you know hag inverted commas is 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 a trope that you see again back into antiquity a lot of this stuff you can find elements right back to uh, uh, to roman and greek sources um but um you get depictions in the the period of the witch trials um, fairly early on in the 16th century you get these depictions uh, in woodcuts of exactly this sort of old crone, you know, the figure that you that was obviously immortalised in Snow White as, as, as well. So the the idea of age and facial disfigurement and all those sorts of things, um, you know, is centuries old. And clearly um, stereotypes and that stereotyping does have an impact on, on the ways in which people, when they're trying to find who is the witch in their community who's doing all this harm, it certainly does play out sometimes. But I'd be very clear to to, to, to people that, that the stereotype doesn't automatically mean you may look like a witch. It does not mean that you're going to be accused, prosecuted, and executed as a witch. There's all sorts of other um, decision-making that takes place about who is the witch responsible for your individual misfortunes. And it does not always mean that the old woman, widow, elderly, begging, is the person who's going to be accused. Sometimes, yes. A lot of the time, no. Eric Blair on Twitter wanted to know, do we have not a rough, a rough idea of people actually believed in witches and witchcraft, or was it more a case of people using witchcraft as a way of to their own benefit, basically, to kind of persecute somebody that perhaps they didn't like or had a, had a bit of beef with? Most people who are prosecuted... Uh, for witchcraft during the witch trials and after were entirely innocent uh, of the the crimes. Nearly all of them were probably entirely innocent of the crimes, of things they were said to have done. But we do have to remember that people did practice harmful counter-magic of all myriad forms, and we may think about the the voodoo doll today, but there's a whole idea of image magic and sticking pins into pictures and crude little dolls. That happened. People did do it. People did it during the time of the witch trials. So we have to separate two things out here. You know, One is that people, yes, are performing uh, harmful magic, and often harmful magic is actually done against suspected witches. In other words, you're using kind of harmful magic to counter the harmful magic that the witch has put on you, the spells put on you. So yes, people are practising this. And at the same time, the people who are normally accused of it, which is, you know, in in vast majority of cases, we have no evidence they were actually doing that at all. So we have to separate out the two things. Camaria um, on Twitter, I hope I've pronounced your name right, is curious, and actually a lot of people have, have kind of brought this up, are curious about non-European witchcraft um, and kind of the role of witches and witchcraft in perhaps non-white cultures um, or not, not Western cultures. We, 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 see the, we see the figure of a witch all over, the, all over the world in different times and different places. So, you know, clearly there's something quite fundamental about the, the idea, of, you know, the way in which humans try and explain the world around them, that they, they think and create the notion of these, there are people in your community, whether they're called witches or whatever, but people in your community who, for the same sort of base reasons of spite and vengeance, etc., perform these harmful acts. In a lot of cultures, uh, non-European, 
we also find that it's mostly women. So there's a clearly there's a very, very strong gendered aspect to this. And obviously most societies, past and present, are patriarchal and misogynistic. And, and so the, the issues of, of gender and you know is, is important across all of this, and the same with stereotyping as well. So yes, we, we see it, we see it in every single continent, the, the, these sorts of figures. You have to be a bit careful about doing cross-cultural comparisons to one extent. Um, you know, I say there are fundamentals which are the same, but the way in which the, the dynamics play out, say, for example, in witchcraft accusations in India or Africa or South America today, um, you know, the, the ways in which accusations are made are socially constructed and so and culturally constructed. So, so yes, you know, the similar sort of based similar figures around, but let's not say it's all the same. It's not all the same. Andrew Harrison on Facebook wanted to know about ways of determining the guilt of a witch. So if we, perhaps if we look at kind of Europe, perhaps when we, we're looking at this. Well, obviously, um, the law can define and de- defines who is, who, who is guilty, not by through trial. But that's not the only way in which people try to find out. So when you've got laws against witchcraft, going to court is one option. And that again, the, how that happened, the dynamics depends on where you are. So um, on the continent, a lot of the continent operated under Roman law, inquisitorial law, and that doesn't mean it's related to the Inquisition. What it means is that trials take place um, following evidence gathered by um, investigating judges. So uh, you know, it, whether it's in France or some one of the German states or whatever, accusations are made in a community, they get reported to the judges, the judges then go and investigate, they gather evidence, they they use torture, and then the trial takes place following the gathering. So that's how it takes place under Roman law. And and Roman law still very much dictates quite a lot of um, law in European countries. Britain, very different, and and obviously uh, in colonial America, which was using common law, English common law. A trial can only take place when someone makes a complaint. A person... The state can't go around creating trials. Someone has to make a complaint and it, and it goes through the process of a magistrate, etc. So you can imagine someone who thinks they're bewitched has to think about whether they want to report this to the authorities, go through a trial. It's expensive, takes time. And we have to remember that, in, in say, in England, for example, it's not a kangaroo court here. A lot of people got off. A lot of people were found not guilty. So you could go to all that expense of trying to get rid of the witch in your community, and at the end, all you are you end up with is out of pocket and still having to have the, the supposed witch in your community still. So it's just one of several options, and people would often go to a cunning person to find out um, who the witch is, and then you would use counter magic against the witch. So cunning folk provide this alternative, in a sense, to the legal um, ways in which you deal with the witch. And were cunning folk themselves not at risk of being accused of witchcraft? Some cunning folk were accused of witchcraft. There's a there's a big misnomer out there, and it's on the full of the internet. That is that that um, the witch trials are all about um, wise women being midwives being prosecuted. That, that, that's that's nonsense. There is no ever no evidence that that was the pre- predominant reason for why people were accused of witchcraft and who were who were accused of witchcraft. But there are a small percentage of those, more or less, in different countries, different cultures who um, were tried for witchcraft, who were cunning folk or wise women. The usual reason for it was that someone would go to a cunning person because they think they're bewitched. The cunning person would say, I know who did this. Here's his. For a few shillings, I will give you this, this, this charm, these herbs. Go away. But if it's connected particularly with illness and it doesn't go away, then 
the person starts thinking, hold on, I've just paid all this money to this cunning person. I'm still feeling bad. I'm still bewitched. Maybe it's the cunning person that's doing this to me. So people, so people kind of like do get accused um, of witchcraft, but it, normally it's in, in, in relationship to the, to the client-patient relationship of someone who thinks they're already bewitched and then comes to have the conviction um, because the, the, the spell doesn't seem to be broken that they're, they're, they're being bewitched by the cunning person. So that, that's often one of the reasons. Tom Banks on Twitter wants to know, um, did Matthew Hopkins and um, his ilk really believe they were rooting out witchcraft or was it a, more of a cynical money-making scheme? So perhaps you, perhaps you need to start off by explaining who Matthew Hopkins was, I think. The, uh, Matthew, Matthew Hopkins, notorious witchfinder general and his psychic John Stern, are fascinating figures and have had a lot of sort of cultural reach in, in, in modern culture. People seem to know about the witchfinder general. And people sometimes think that they were these uh, you know cynical pair exploiting people's fears at a time when the british civil wars are taking place and they were just in it for the money but if you look at and you read what they published it's it's absolutely clear that they were sincere in what they thought they were doing essentially matthew hopkins is acting like a inquisitorial judge on the continent he's he's assumed in a sense this this continental role of the, the investigating judge and there's no doubt that he sincerely thinks he's got some sort of divine mission to go and exterminate these terrible people, supposedly witches, who are in league with the devil. So, you know, his his whole mindset is is nothing unusual. I mean, that is that is there are Cambridge divines and theologians who are saying the same thing and thinking the same thing as Matthew Hopkins does. It's just that Matthew Hopkins gets on his horse uh, with his sidekick and goes and does something about it. Uh, and yes, he does. Obviously, he's making a living from it at the same time, but his motivation is clearly you know, one which he thinks is a sincere mission from God. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting what you say about he was sort of working when the sort of civil war was taking place. Do you see sort of peaks in um, witchcraft uh, trials or accusations at, in times of kind of uncertainty in society in general? You can see some patterns um, in terms of the rise and fall of witch trials or intensity, and you you can try and map them onto times of great instability, such as war or famine. And yes, you, you can see some correlations, and people have tried to do this with the Thirty Years' War on the continent. When you look at the the Civil War, British Civil War period in the mid seventeenth century in England, there, there is a, there is a spike, but but you have to be careful because most of the spike in trials is caused by Matthew Hopkins. In other words, his his proactive campaign. And I should say with Matthew Hopkins, he's doing nothing illegal. He doesn't actually try them. What he does, as I say, is, is like an investigating judge. He goes and questions people, extracts evidence, and hands over to the authorities and say, look. I've got all this evidence, boom. So he's not judge and jury at all in this. But he skews the figures when it comes to, when you look at English, the rise and fall of English trials, um, he skews, just two years, really, you know, skews the figures there because of his actions. And if without that, um, one suspects that there wouldn't be this great spike. In other words, you, you might call it an aberration, but, you know, it's, historical, it's historical fact. But the, the, the peak of the trials in, in, in England was actually in the 1590s under Queen Elizabeth. That's where the peak was. You get to the 1620s and it becomes an absolute trickle, 1620s, 1630s, then suddenly the spike with Matthew Hopkins and then it all collapses again. People can get a, a, a misunderstanding of thinking that, the, that certainly in, in an English context, the intensity is in the mid-17th century, when in fact, let's say, 
For most of the country, because Matthew Hopkins is largely in the east of, east, east of England, for most of the country, the peak was in the 1590s. And we see that pattern on the continent as well. There are some states like the Palatinate, where the trials are pretty much ended by 1610. Uh, you can look at France, where they became a trickle by the mid-17th century. Um, and it all depends on the nature of rulers, nature of legal system, things like that. But yes, we can, we can, I wouldn't overemphasize the links when you've got famine or war, because uh, fundamentally, again, you've got these two baseline things of misfortune on the ground and the campaign against satanic conspiracy at the top. Okay. Nicole on Twitter was asking about the role of familiars and whether animals were put to death for being familiars. No, um, there's there's a famous book by Evans, which is about the trial of animals. And um, from, a, from a legalistic point of view, uh, a medieval period, early modern period, or early, early modern point, I should say, um, there were a series of trials uh, of animals. And this was very much in a, in a theological framework of of, of accusation uh, and explanation um, for you know, various sorts of divine acts. But familiars, and during the witch trials, no, no, there, was no, there were no animals prosecuted. There, there are two, that's two separate histories going on, one the prosecution of animals in the medieval period and then um, the witch trials. Yes, there's lots of information, particularly in the, the English material, about these familiars who were shape-shifted, um, as cats and dogs. During the, the few years of Matthew Hopkins, we get a, a wider array of familiars. Even turkey cocks appear, which is obviously an American turkey. But even then, you know, people are going, oh, there's this turkey and it's a familiar. You know, East Anglia, East Anglia, which is quite interesting. But most mostly dogs, dogs and cats. In other words, pets, you know. And so, you know, there is quite a lot of work being done now on familiars. And, but, but no, people don't, pe- there's no trial of, of familiars. Uh, was there's no law for, for 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 doing that, and at the same time, no one goes around and can actually catch a familiar either. These are you know slippery spiritual nasty things, but no one actually says I've got one which I bring to the magistrate. You know, Edwardian house dweller on Instagram wanted to know how many men were tried and or executed for for witchcraft. Could men be witches? I guess as well. There. In every during the early modern trials, and again, you know, after the trials, people still believe in witchcraft, and I've looked at those. Um, and roughly, roughly across Europe, you're looking at around twenty percent. Twenty percent of all those prosecuted um, were men. That's quite a lot. Yeah. So if you, you know, if you add it up, it's, that's thousands, you know, it's, it's several thousand men who are executed um, for under witchcraft laws. And we have to remember that the laws themselves were quite broad. It wasn't just harmful magic. You, there are other aspects of magic um, that were also in, like treasure hunting, for example, you know, which came under these these broader laws. So um, you know, you have to unpick it a bit about what what these male witches were doing. Some of them were just were accused just as women witches were, or accused witches of maleficium. Um, some were performing treasure hunting, for example. Some might have been conjuring up spirits and other acts, so it, it, it's quite broad. But yes, we we, we must always remember that that that, that around around twenty percent, and you can go to certain places at certain times, and and you get actually a majority of um, those being prosecuted being men. So there's a period in Normandy and France where a series of shepherds get accused of witchcraft, and so for a period it's actually it's actually men who are, who are being accused more than women. And you can look at um, parts of uh, Nordic countries and you'll see that um, um, you know, Sami Sami magicians 
are being accused under laws against witchcraft, they're not actually necessarily being accused of maleficium or harmful magic. They're accused under the laws for being Sami magicians. So within that 20%, uh, you, you can unpick different trends going on different places for different reasons, but all the more fascinating and all the more reason to, to remember. But at the same time, you know, it is 80% of women being prosecuted and executed. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's, there's a notorious case in the town of Elvangen, in what's now Germany, where torture ratcheted up to the point at which, you know, nearly half the town was somehow under investigation. And it collapses, the whole thing collapses under its own intrinsic illogicality, in a sense, because one of the wives of one of the judges gets accused uh, named under torture, and the whole thing collapsed. But by that time, you know, dozens of people have been executed. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Was the belief in witches strengthened by Catholic anxieties towards Protestantism and vice versa? Fairly early on in the histories of witchcraft, I'm talking about the late 19th, early 20th centuries and the first sort of histories of being written about the witch trials, um, there was an argument put forward that somehow this was all about Catholics accusing Protestants and Protestants accusing Catholics. Obviously the Reformation had happened and, you know, uh, 15, 1518, 1519, and, you know, very quickly a number of countries had turned Protestant from a Catholic perspective. Um, this was seen to be, was explained in terms of being the work of the devil, he's trying to undermine Christ, Christendom as, 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 as talked about in book of revelation in the bible so for, you know f from a papal point of view the reformation itself is a sign of the devil's work whereas uh, from a protestant point of view they say we have we've had to break from the church of rome because the papacy is the head of the you know the, the pope is is essentially the devil's emissary you know that the, the papacy has become corrupt the church has become corrupt and it's been corrupted and you can make the associations with that being positive so the two are accusing each other here of being doing the devil's work and being inspired by satan doesn't actually play out in terms of understanding the trials and so there's a lot of quite a lot of nonsense written early on about saying well in catholic states it was they were picking on the protestants and protestant states that picking up the catholics and just using witchcraft as a means of of exterminating one or the other does not map out at all. Very few. The, the, the trials cannot in any way be explained by what we call confessional conflict between Catholics and Protestants. And there are very few, very few trials where there's even any explicit reference to, to that being any form of motivation. So no, we have to knock that on the head. Andrew Harrison on Facebook wanted to know, how was guilt determined? Um, so once someone had, had been accused of witchcraft, what, what, what was the process? What happened next? Determining guilt in a court of law, again, depends on the legal systems. If we want to use common law, which is obviously in operation, was in operation in England, Wales and Scotland, for example, um, guilt is determined by jury, trial by jury. And you have two types of jury. You have a petty jury and a grand jury. So what happens um, is that 
someone makes an accusation, someone bring, of, of, accuses someone of witchcraft, brings some evidence, you go to the local magistrate, he hears the evidence, witnesses are brought, he takes some testimonies, etc. He decides whether there's enough evidence for it to go to court, uh, to the assizes, which is the, which is the, the, the highest courts which deal with, with capital offences, and then he's, he's, you know, it's the magistrate who decides. If it then goes to court, then it's up to initially a grand jury to decide whether there's sufficient evidence. If they decide there's enough evidence, then it goes to the petty jury. In other words, the, the trial that we're more familiar with of, of, of 12 men in a, in a court of law. And then what happens in the actual trial itself is that witnesses are brought. The defendant can't defend themselves doesn't happen under the, under the law. And so it's all about this the weight of this testimony which which the jury has to decide. What about things like the use of torture to extract confessions and things like that? Was that actually was that actually used? Tor- tor- torture was illegal in witch trials in, in England. It's obviously used widely on the continent and the degree of torture is also used in Scotland. But in England torture was for for treason was 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 used for treason but you there were there were it was not allowed, it was illegal to torture a witch for confessions. On the continent, it was widespread. It doesn't matter whether it's Protestant or Catholic or, or whatever. And the whole, the whole reason of confession was the idea that you're, it, it, there's, you know, there's this kind of religious underpinning is that torture is considered to be valid in a sense because you have to make these people confess, because to confess not only in trial but to confess before God. And so there is just that you kind of force them to confess to their sins, to their heinousness of the supposed crimes they committed. But of course, torture, torture is one of the key reasons that we have tens of thousands of people prosecuted and executed. Because torture, under torture, people name names. And so it spirals and spirals and spirals. So rather than just a, a pattern of one trial here, one person there, one person here, you know, there might not even be a which prosecution in England for a year or whatever. When you use torture and people name names, then you, you, you can literally bring in hundreds of people who are then brought in and tortured and torture and torture and torture. There's there's a notorious case in the town of Elvangen in what's now Germany, where torture ratcheted up to the point at which, you know, nearly half the town was somehow under investigation. And it collapses, the whole thing collapses under its own intrinsic illogicality in a sense, because one of the wives of one of the judges gets accused. Uh, named under torture and the whole thing collapsed but by that time you know dozens of people have been executed um so that's what torture can do you know in terms of exploding uh, a, a trial uh, you know an accusation up from very minor to becoming you know a crisis in a sense yeah do we see um the kind of which you say there was a peak um in the sort of 1590s in the Elizabethan period, um, in witch trials, do we see um, this happening elsewhere in the world at, at a similar time? I mean, the, the, the witch the witch trials are, are European in scope. Obviously, um, there are witch trials in Russia at the same time, but more more diffuse. You get you get witch scares in different cultures at different times. I mean, um, there are examples of similar sorts of trials taking place in China, 18th century. So. You know, these these patterns take place at different times and different places. All, again, sometimes these are these are dictated by the introduction of laws and, and the rescinding of laws. Sometimes, if they come from the ground up, it can happen at any time. So, you know, in in, the, in our contemporary world, there are dozens of women being beaten up and brutally murdered for being witches today. This isn't the state, or this isn't the state doing it. In other words, the state is you know is trying to clamp down on these ground up sort of lynch mobs basically but these are happening 
breaking out in different places on a fairly regular basis today, leading to death. So, you know, we, we can see how these fears about these witches can can lead to these outbreaks of, of what you might call witch hunting, illegal or otherwise. And you mentioned earlier about um, the fact that the kind of that, that thought that midwives were un, were sort of targeted is is not actually the case. Liv Stewart on Instagram wanted to know was was there a sort of a move from being a trusted medicine woman to then becoming a feared witch, and if so, how did that come about? So were people who practice medicine um, kind of more likely to be accused of witchcraft? The, the link between female healers and witch trials is fairly tenuous. Yes, if you go through all the witch trials, you will find people who practice, practiced a bit of herbal medicine or whatever. You might find you'll find a few midwives because that was a every every community had a informal or formal midwives. It's another whole history of how men dominated the profession later. But, and yes, you know, some cunning women, wise women, were caught up in the trials as well. But that's that's not the main link. Most most of those accused were were, were not petty healers, or cunning folk, or wise women, or midwives. Yeah, most women and men would practice some form of domestic medicine and, and, and herbal remedies. But the real, you know, you would go to an expert. You would go to a, a licensed physician or a cunning person or a, or, a, or a folk healer for that sort of commonly but those generally aren't the people who are being accused so it isn't about secret female knowledge of medicine or anything like that that's that's not that's not why people are being accused of witchcraft people are being accused of witchcraft because of misfortune jessica roberts on facebook wanted to know um is there any evidence um of witchcraft accusations being used um as a way of, sort of getting rid of undesirables in society the cynical, cynical um, use of the laws against witchcraft to get rid of an enemy or a neighbour. Yes, clearly it sometimes does happen. We can see a few examples of the ways in which people level an accusation because of more other reasons, if you see what I mean. In other words, they say, I'm going to accuse, accuse my neighbour of being a witch because um, you know I want to grab their land or I, I just can't stand them. Uh, hate these people, so I'm therefore going to accuse them of witch. So, yeah, a small, small number of trials probably do originate in quite cynical accusations. But the vast majority are not cynical. People, you know, really do think that whatever it is that's, you know, causing the dairy, the butter, you know, the, the, the dairy to malfunction, the butter not to come, or bewitching the cows, or making your child ill or whatever, people sincerely believe that. I mean, it was a, it was a perfectly normal way of trying to explain misfortune everyday misfortune in a world where even the smallest misfortune can turn you know people are living on the poverty line any small misfortune just sink you even further so those those are things that are determining why accusations uh, are made Rosemary Gurney on um, Facebook wanted to know how did the concept of the demonic pact come to be demonic pact's uh, an interesting one you can see the notion developing particularly through the 13th and 14th century, um, obviously about the, about the ways in which a, uh, some medieval magicians, for example, who were normally clergymen, either by reputation or accusation, were sometimes suspected of, of having had relationships with the devil through forming some form of pact. But the idea of a physical pact is something that really becomes prominent during the witch trials period from the late 
um, 15th century onwards and obviously becomes central to some of the most lurid examples of, of, of accusations of devil worship that, that particularly and mostly in continental trials. So that's where it seems to, that the witch trials creates this milieu in which the fear about the devil and how is the devil going about doing this and how is he, how is he going to infiltrate Christianity? And, and that, that's when you get these elaborate notions of physical pacts, whether it's the written pact in blood, the, the Faustian pact, uh, which people did. People did write letters, they exist. People did write letters in their own blood, mostly men, to the devil. And then obviously the theological notion of the witch was explicitly about a pact. And it could be sealed through sexual acts, for example. You even you also get the idea that people have, have signed up to the devil. Well, it's not necessarily that they've said, "I will, if you give me health and wealth for twenty five years, I will, I will give you my soul." Um, you also even get these notions of covenanting, the idea that you write that these witches are writing the name in a book that the devil has. So it, it becomes quite diverse. But the whole the whole nature of it being quite explicitly that. Um, a witch is in a de- diabolic relationship. But, again, we have to make clear that on the ground level, yes, the notion that a link between devils and witchcraft is there, but most mundane accusations of witchcraft do not mention the devil. In other words, they're not saying, the neighbour did it to me, she's had a pact with the devil, she's bewitched my chickens. Devil doesn't come into it. It's about you and the suspected witch who is normally a neighbour or whatever in your village. So the devil kind of is, there's a, is, is one remove on from the actual concerns of your average person. We might have touched on this a little bit earlier. Miss Geddens on Instagram wanted to know about acquittals in witchcraft trials. And you mentioned that actually lots of people were acquitted. Do we know how many in, in terms of, you know, against how many people were, were um, prosecuted and found guilty? I mean, if you, if you look at the totality of English trials, it's only roughly half. You know, it's a lot of people. I say people have the notion that once once the you know the witch trials get into gear, it's some sort of some sort of panic, insane. All these type, you know, calling hysteria or craze doesn't help because this is all thought out. There's there's lengthy bureaucratic processes to go through with prosecutions. You know that you in in this country you have a jury trial by jury on the continent. You have invest panel of investigating judges doing their jobs. The Inquisition is incredibly bureaucratic, and and, and hardly any people are found to be you know accused of witchcraft through the inquisitorial system as well so we have to get away from this notion that you know someone just gets hauled off you gets accused gets hauled off put in jail and brought before a kangaroo court you're you're guilty off you go then you get hanged and you're burned or whatever it's it's not like that at all you know and it, these these trials can you know drag on for months um depending on when someone's accused you know it's it, it's it's it, in one sense it's a very you know dull and bureaucratic process and often the evidence is found insufficient and obviously increasingly increasingly towards 17th century as, as jurisprudence is getting more sophisticated certain types of evidence like spectral evidence is increasingly being thrown out in other words if someone says oh there was a the witch sent a spirit to me and she pinched and punched me and made me run backwards and it's like well did anyone else see that no so it's just you and this evidence of this spirit that did this sorry that's not acceptable evidence you know if t- if two or three people saw it happening, we may consider it. So things like spectral evidence, which are at the fundamentals of the Salem trial, you know, it's about these girls accusing, you know, the, the witches having pinching and punching them and things like that. That sort of evidence is increasingly being thrown out across Europe at that time. One thing we haven't covered is how witchcraft was punished, and obviously this varied depending on where you where you were. And um, there's a bit of a misconception that witches were were burnt in England, which they they weren't, were they? No, no. I mean, p- p- the punishments depend from from country to country when it comes to what happens to 
convicted, successfully convicted witches. In England, categorically, only one person was ever uh, burned um, for witchcraft. That's, that's Mother Lakeland. And the reason she was burned is because she was found guilty of using witchcraft for petty treason. In other words, petty treason is a woman killing her husband. So she was burned because of petty treason and not because of the acts of witchcraft. So in England, the, the, the punishment was always was hanging. You know, the execution method was always hanging. Elsewhere, burning was common, but in most cases, people were strangled before they were put on the pyre. In other words, rarely were people burned alive, which is burned alive. It wasn't done as a spectacle, but quietly people were, you know, um, were throttled um, or strangled or suffocated before they were put on put on fire. You know, there are other punishments like breaking on the wheel, which uh, people might have seen some, you know, um, uh, Hieronymus Bosch or Breuchel, sorry, Breuchel's um, famous paintings of people being broken on the wheel, um, which is basically where you are tied to a wheel and you're just beaten to a pulp until you die. But there's all sorts of other execution methods. Um, beheading by sword takes place. So it, it, it's diverse, um, the human mind, when it comes to torture and execution methods. Um, the human mind sadistic, is really quite sadistic and inventive. Yes, and finally, when when was the last person um, killed for for witchcraft in England? I guess or Britain? Oh uh, yeah, well, I mean the last the last trials, the last tri- um, the last sorry, the last executions for, for for witchcraft in England take place in the early 1680s uh, in Devon. So 1680s, early 1680s, 1683. That's the last executions for witchcraft. The last tr- successful, the last person to be found guilty is in 1712 in Hertfordshire, Jane Wenham, trial of Jane Wenham. She is the last person to be convicted uh, and sentenced to death as a witch. Um, and huge amounts of evidence was brought by her neighbours and stuff. A lot of it, spectral evidence, was thrown out, which was thrown out. By the, and what she's actually convicted for is talking to the devil in the form of a cat. Okay. That's what she's actually found guilty of. Not all the maleficium and stuff like that. She's actually reprieved uh, and lives out the rest of her life quite peaceably. But she is the last one to be convicted and then she's pardoned. On the continent, the last trials take place um, in Central Europe and Switzerland in the 1780s. It's the last trial under witchcraft. Although when you look at the nature of the Swiss last Swiss trial, it's actually much more about poisoning than uh, anything else. But in general, in general, across Europe, the trials are really petering out, you know, by the 18th century. And then you get ones here and there, often to do with actually treasure hunting and things like that. But so that the peak is over. Well, there are um, examples of, of sort of community justice. So um, communities taking matters into their own hands and, and um, not, not trying a witch, but, you know, punishing or, or trying to find out whether somebody is a witch. We get, even during the period of the trials... People would sometimes take the law into their own hands to try and find the guilt of a witch. Famously, people will, will know about swimming a witch, the idea that you, to, it's called the water test, the, the idea that if you, if you suspect someone, you take her to a pool or a stream, you tie her with ropes and you put her into the water. And um, if, she, if she floats, she's guilty because she's been rejected by God's baptismal waters and if she sinks she's, she's innocent but may, may drown you know that, that dilemma so you know those quasar they're not official 
and the evidence isn't recognised in court, but people did take the, take the law into their own hands during the witch trials. And obviously, once the laws are rescinded, say, for example, um, in England, uh, in Britain, um, by, in 1736, after that, we still get examples right through into the early 19th century of communities going out and swimming suspected witches. We have to remember that you know people people's knowledge of the law sometimes takes decades for people to realise that they witches are no longer uh, no longer you know um, witchcraft isn't a crime. You know the witches are no longer they just if, if someone says they're a witch or whatever they're, it's a fraudulent thing. So, but it takes decades. So people even into the early 19th century are still going to a magistrate and going do something about that damn witch. And the magistrate has to explain, go, sorry, but there's no laws against witchcraft, you know. So it takes a long time for, for people to understand the nature of the law and the changes. And they expect the state, after two centuries of witch trials, people still expect the state to do something about these damn witches. That was Owen Davies, who's Professor of History at the University of Hertfordshire. If you want to hear more on the history of witchcraft, then check out our series on the Salem Witch Trials. Search for Salem in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm-hmm.